Hi, I'm Scott. And I'm Jason. Welcome to Skipped on Shuffle, a podcast where we delve into an overlooked song by a popular artist. Today, we're going to be talking about the Nirvana song, Sifting, from their 1989 album, Bleach. funny that we've done 50 or so episodes and are just getting to nirvana i feel like that's the funny part about doing these episodes is just there's people where it's just like how did it take so long to get here and i think because of when we grew up there's so many like 90s bands that we're really into and excited to talk about and i feel like nirvana has been the one sort of looming in the background in terms of our, our, our shared love of grunge music and this is like the band you know the one of the biggest bands in that era yeah we've done we've done uh you know stone Temple pilots pearl jam uh smashing pumpkin we've like we've like done the bubble around Nirvana. we've gone around it soundgarden yeah yeah soundgarden <laughs> we've done all we've gone like allison chains like <laughs> we've, we've we've ticked off so many boxes that are like surrounding nirvana but not actually attack nirvana and you're right it, it's be, it's it's been a little nerve-wracking because this is such a huge band that's so incredibly important even i feel like even if you don't listen to nirvana you understand how important nirvana is to music in in general like it's just they're just i don't know this presence over music you know forever now at least um so, so to, to give you kind of a little background here, the way, and, and we've mentioned this before, but just for anybody who's, who's just tuning in to us for the first time, uh, the way we pick these songs that we're going to talk about in each of these episodes is we go to this, this website that has this database of all of these, uh, you know, all the music that are, uh, that are on most streaming services, Spotify, Deezer, Pandora, whatever, and, uh, you know, uh, basically ranks the songs by popularity. And so we go to those lists and we rank all the songs from an artist. And then we basically go to the bottom of the list and work our way up and figure out which songs aren't being listened to as much. And with Nirvana, because the catalog is so small, they only have three records, really. um, There wasn't much to pick from. (laughs) We were like, you know, even even some of the lesser known material was still you know, fairly popular on, on the streaming networks. However, this, not only is this song that we're talking about today, sifting extremely low, but, uh, most of the first album bleach is also incredibly low. It's almost like people just aren't really listening to this, this album. It's funny because Cobain makes a a joke about it when they did the unplugged where just before they start to play about a girl, he says, this is off our first record. Most people don't own it. And it's weird because that's still true. I mean, at the time, it was like, you know, the band had like huge commercial hits. And you would think after, you know, Cobain's death and, you know, Nirvana, the dissolution of Nirvana, you know, Nirvana no longer exists. Well, it's come back in one form or another here and there. But, you know, for, for all intents and purposes, the band is done. You think so many people would have clamored for, oh, we're not going to have any more Nirvana. Let's go back and, you know, get that get let's go back and get that first record and people still kind of haven't and we'll we'll talk about that in this episode today i think there's some reasons for it you know i'm sure the probably the production value would take people aback (laughs) 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 and we'll yeah and we'll get into all that in this episode and and maybe that's that's part of the reason um but it's i i love this like i don't remember exactly when i picked this one up it was it was probably the last one i mean scott mentioned you know there's only three proper studio albums um and probably for most people this is sort of the last stop in looking back at this band but i don't know i i I love this record and you know when we do pick these songs we do go kind of by our gut feeling so we kind of had a feeling most people have probably skipped over the bleach album and probably most nirvana fans aren't too familiar with sifting and i think it's just a cool song so i'm glad we're i'm glad we're finally to nirvana i'm glad we finally get to talk about bleach and uh, chat about this song Too great. 
Unlike most other bands, Nirvana's start was very slow and messy. Singer-guitarist Kurt Cobain met bassist Chris Novoselic while the two were in high school in Washington State during the mid-80s. The pair became fast friends, but did not start a band together. Kurt wanted to start a band with Chris, though, and even gave him a set of early demos under the band name Fecal Matter. Yep, that's, that's, that's a great band name. <laughs> However, Noah Selleck didn't listen to the demos until three years later in 1987. Impressed, he called up Cobain to say that he finally listened to his songs, and the two agreed to find a drummer and start a proper band. First, they started a Credence Clearwater Revival tribute band called The Sellouts, that project only lasted for about a month before the drummer left. Cobain and Novoselic found a new drummer and started practicing Kurt's original Fecal Matter songs. The trio quickly started to write new material, though. The band went through numerous name changes before Kurt finally settled on the name Nirvana. He thought it was a good name because it was a pretty word and could contrast the dangerous-sounding and sometimes offensive names most punk bands use, kind of like Fecal Matter. <laughs> <laughs> Nirvana wrote songs and played shows for about a year. Drummers would start with the band and then either quit or get fired quickly. Eventually, drummer Chad Channing joined the group, and the first solid Nirvana lineup was cemented. In November 1988, Nirvana released its first single. It was a cover of a song called Love Buzz, originally by a Dutch rock group called Shocking Blue. Check it out here. The Love Buzz single was released on an independent label called Sub Pop, which was based in Seattle. The single didn't chart and was limited to just 1,000 numbered copies. Sub Pop then agreed to release an EP from Nirvana, but said it would not supply any money to pay for recording. The band decided to prep for a full album instead, since the label wasn't paying for it either way. Luckily, a friend of the band named Jason Everman agreed to pay for the recording. The 11 tracks on the album were recorded in about 30 hours total, over the span of a few days, costing Everman about $600, which is equivalent to around $1,300 today. Everman then joined Nirvana as a second guitarist, receiving a credit in the album's original liner notes, and even appearing on the cover. However, he didn't play a single note on the whole record. Nirvana argued a lot with the sub-pop label about the album, which by this point had a final title, Bleach. Sub Pop didn't have the money to release an album and forced the band to remix some of the songs and restructure the album's track list. We'll talk a bit more about this poor working relationship later on, as the song we're talking about today, Sifting, is the final track on this album. Eventually, Sub Pop did release Bleach, but barely promoted it. The only single from the record, aside from the original Love Buzz, is a song called Blue. Check it out here. Although Sub Pop bungled the release of Bleach, the album did receive a lot of contemporary critical acclaim. College Radio also loved the record. This helped the band tour the US as well as the UK and develop a strong following. Once the touring cycle for Bleach was over, Jason Everman was out of the band. There are disputes as to if he quit or was fired, but Nirvana was back to a three-piece regardless. The band started working on demos for its next album in April 1990. Producer Butch Vig was a huge fan of the group, but felt they could be more successful if they had a bigger and poppier sound, which he started helping them mold during these sessions. While the band was working on these early demos, word started to spread through the industry that the band was looking to get out of its contract with Sub Pop. This caused various labels to start circling Nirvana, eager to pounce. During this tumultuous time, drummer Chad Channing was finding himself dissatisfied with the group. 
Upset that he wasn't able to contribute to songwriting as much as he'd like, he started being less interested in the band. This led to Cobain and Novoselic feeling like he was dead weight, and Channing left the group in the early summer of 1990. In July, the band recorded a one-off single with a temporary drummer. That single is called Sliver, and you can check it out here. Mom and Dad went to a show They dropped me off at Grandpa Joe's I kicked and screamed, said please no Grandma take me home, Grandma take me home Grandma take me home, Grandma take me home Grandma take me home, Grandma take me home Grandma take me home, Grandma take With the band ready to get into the studio and start formal tracking for the second record, they needed a permanent drummer. Friend of the band Buzz Osborne, who is the iconic frontman of the band The Melvins, introduced Nirvana to a drummer named Dave Grohl. After a short audition, Grohl was in the band. According to Novoselic, they knew Grohl was perfect for Nirvana within two minutes of jamming. Thus, the final and most well-known lineup of Nirvana is solidified. Kurt Cobain on guitar and vocals... Chris Novoselic on bass, and Dave Grohl on drums. In a whirlwind of activity, the band figured out a way to exit its sub-pop contract and signed with DGC Records, sometimes mistakenly called Geffen Records. They moved to LA with producer Butch Vig and spent two months and far more than $600 on making their second album. This would end up being one of the biggest and most important albums of all time, known as Nevermind. The first single from Nevermind is one of the most well-known rock songs ever recorded, Smells Like Teen Spirit. DGC Records hoped to sell 250,000 copies of Nevermind, which would have been a decent number for an indie record. However, Smells Like Teen Spirit became a smash hit, and Nirvana all of a sudden found themselves mainstream rock stars, and by Christmas of that year, Nevermind was selling 400,000 copies each week. Things happened so fast that the band hadn't even seen any royalty checks by the time they were famous. At one point, Someone asked Kurt what it's like to see his music video on MTV all the time, and he answered that he didn't know because he didn't have MTV in his car, which is where he was living. Nirvana's tours to promote Nevermind were oversold, and TV crews followed them everywhere. The label kept up the momentum by releasing three more singles, all of which tore up the charts and became radio staples, such as Lithium, In Bloom, and the iconic Come As You Are. Eventually, this newfound fame and success took its toll on the band. Kurt started taking drugs. He also reformatted the band's contract to give himself more money from royalties since he was doing most of the songwriting. This caused friction with Novoselic and Grohl. In February 1993, the band entered the studio again to record its third and what would end up being their final album. This time, the band set out to shed away from the poppy gloss of Nevermind and return to a more abrasive and raw sound like they showed on Bleach. Producer Steve Albini helped the band record the album, which was eventually titled In Utero, in about two weeks for $25,000. DGC Records was not happy with the album. At one point, an executive called it unreleasable. Still, Nirvana was one of the most famous rock bands of the moment, so the album made it into stores with only a few changes from the band. It immediately shot to number one. The lead single from the record was called Heart Shaped Box. I've been 
The tour for In Utero was a disaster. Cobain would disappear for days on end during drug binges, which at this point was mostly him using heroin. When he did show up to play, he would be a total mess and sometimes forget words and seem lost. In March of 1994, Cobain suffered a drug overdose. The rest of the tour was canceled, and Cobain entered rehab after the band and his friends and family staged an intervention. After less than a week in rehab, he checked himself out and returned home. A week later, he was found dead in his home, having died of a self-inflicted shotgun wound. In his suicide note, he quoted the Neil Young song, My My Hey Hey Out of the Blue, by saying, It's better to burn out than to fade away. After Cobain's death, DGC Records quickly released a live Nirvana album recorded for an MTV Unplugged session. The lead single from that record was a song called About a Girl, which was first released on Bleach. Check out the Unplugged version here. This is off our first record. Most people don't own it. Since Cobain's death, there have been many different live albums, box sets, DVDs, documentaries, re-releases, and other launches from Nirvana. When the band was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, Dave Grohl and Chris Novoselic reunited to play a live set of Nirvana songs with a rotating group of singers and guitarists taking the place for Cobain. But let's go back to happier times when the band was a dirty punk group recording its first record for just $600. That's the era in which the song we're talking about today, Sifting, takes shape. We hope you're enjoying this episode of Skipped on Shuffle. Right about now, in most podcasts, you'd be hearing an ad for something, uh, but we are trying to keep Skipped on Shuffle ad-free, and the way we're going to be able to do that is through Patreon. Please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash skipped on shuffle. Any donations go to support the costs associated with running this podcast. So going back to the late 80s and thinking about the origins of the Bleach album, and we mentioned Sub Pop Records, which was Nirvana's record label for that album, it's kind of important to understand what Sub Pop was, which is it was a very small independent label of basically two guys running a record label how they think it should be run and barely eking by. So it explains why, as Scott mentioned in the history, this company didn't really have any money to do anything it was more just to kind of coalesce the all these seattle bands in sort of one spot through one record label so any of these bands were like just local bands and it would give you some kind of boost because it would be like oh yes i'm a band yes we're on a label you know that label doesn't give us much support but they slap it with you know this sub pop sticker and everyone's like okay i know I'm I'm guaranteed to kind of get this product from this region and I know it's supporting these other small bands in the Seattle area, if that kind of makes any sense. Because the two guys who ran Sub Pop Records kind of recognize like, okay, smaller independent bands like Motown and stuff, it's because they're all associated with like that particular sound. So they knew in making this record label, everybody's going to know that kind of grungy sound. So that's important to talk about because... Cobain in putting the Bleach album together and doing the songwriting feels kind of compelled to keep with this sort of grunge thing that was happening. And we've kind of talked about that sort of, you know, sludgy, punkish sound in, you know, many other episodes. And certainly you can listen to any track on Bleach and anything from, you know, Alice in Chains, Soundgarden, and immediately kind of know what we're what we're talking about with that sound. Now, we're going to talk a bit about 
how Cobain kind of manipulated his music to to fit that sub pop sound. Uh, but but at the same time, we have to understand one thing, which is that Cobain is a, and we've we've mentioned this a few times in other episodes, is is what we like to call an unreliable narrator, where in interviews and 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 uh, other you know correspondence with media, he would you know not take anything seriously. So sometimes, you know, they would ask him questions and he would just, you know, answer with a joke or, or give a complete non-answer or say something that's so outlandish and ridiculous that you're just like, that, that can't possibly be true. And so it's kind of hard to really get to the bottom of what Cobain was really thinking and doing at this time. But there are certain things that he says over and over and over again. And then you start to realize like, okay, because he said the same answer, numerous interviews over a span of years, then you kind of get an idea like, okay, this must be true. And one of the things he talks about is this aspect of kind of like pushing bleach to become a certain type of sound. And Jason mentioned earlier on in, in this episode that the, that the sound of bleach is, is very abrasive. And so, underproduced or lo-fi or however we want to refer to it that some listeners who are used to the big produced poppy sound of something like nevermind may be like you know this is this is too too indie for me you know kind of thing and uh and that's you know kind of that's kind of what Cobain was pushing it towards because he wanted to fit in with those other bands and fit in with the label and get the support that he needed to get the the album to be successful but what's interesting is, is that uh, during this time, Cobain would also say that what he wanted to do was to sort of combine the two halves of his personality into Nirvana's music. And that would be a softer, poppier, what Cobain referred to as a quote unquote wimpy sound with this heavy, angry, dirty, you know, punky, almost like like noise sound and kind of mesh those two sounds together to make the music that he felt, you know, Nirvana was supposed to make. So bleach doesn't really do that. Bleach is very much more, more just like, you know, loud, angry, sludgy rock record. Um, but ironically in when Nevermind becomes huge and successful, which does have more of like that pop sheen to it. And I, I think is a little bit closer to what Cobain said he wanted to do. Once that became successful, then he immediately rejected that and wanted to go back to the super grungy sound of Bleach. So it's it's really strange to listen to Bleach and and for me and hear people say things like, "Oh, this sounds this doesn't sound like the Nirvana I know," because really I feel like this is what Cobain eventually decided Nirvana was supposed to sound like. Yeah. So by the time you get to In Utero, it's a weird combination of the two because you got the 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 more produced sound but the bleach style songs and i feel like yeah anytime i throw on in utero it, it immediately makes me kind of want to go back and and listen to bleach because i feel like that kind of more accurately captures the nirvana sound and it's so funny with like just never mind this like monster album sitting in the middle of of the two of them and it's interesting to think about the band at this time too, because you know we we mentioned how this record sounds just so kind of rough, and the the production value is much lower. As we mentioned, you know, not a lot of money invested in making this. It's recorded in a pretty short period of time, but it's also important to think about how, despite the short time of recording and the fact that it only encapsulated like a few days of recording, it was over the span of a year. So while the songs sound kind of I guess demo-ish, I think one would kind of be inclined to say until the box that came out and you heard the actual Nirvana demos and you're like, whoa, these are <laughs> these are real rough. <laughs> um, but I, when you listen to Bleach, you have to understand that the, the band is like tight and well-rehearsed. Like it's loud and kind of messy and sloppy, but in a very deliberate way. And it's just cool to kind of capture that sort of live aspect of the band. Because it very much sounds like three guys in a room, like playing real loud. And I don't know, there's, there's, and it's again that whole like punk vibe that I think more so with Nirvana than any other band. And we can kind of get a sense of that too on when we look at the, the lyrics and sound of Sifting in particular.
So we've talked a bunch so far about how Bleach is, you know, uh, a, a, a record that sounds very abrasive, very lo-fi, and was made for very little money, and and can be kind of off-putting to a listener who maybe is more used to, you know, the Nirvana, the radio Nirvana. And that's absolutely true. And one of the reasons that we picked this song, Sifting, is because we feel that this song kind of is is one of the best marriages of the two sounds of Nirvana, the the grungy, dirty sound of Bleach with the more poppy elements of of Nirvana's Nevermind album and 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 most of the stuff they recorded during that time period. And obviously there are a lot of songs on on Bleach that do this, but you know, this is skipped on shuffle, so we couldn't do about a girl. We, you know, we we couldn't do the songs that are actually more popular on Bleach and had to do one of the ones that is less popular and and sifting of the ones that we found uh, on the record that you know aren't listened to that much, uh, this one kind of connected it the most. And so, yes, it starts off with this like you know really really abrasive, overly distorted, just mess of a of a of a of a riff that's just like you know gunk, 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 and just really metal in your face stuff. And and then it kind of goes into the traditional, you know, pop structure that Nirvana is known for, which they they joke about a lot with their verse, chorus, verse kind of element, uh, which they they there's uh there's two songs by Nirvana called Verse Chorus Verse, and they were even going to release a live album at one point called Verse Chorus Verse. So clearly this like joke of how Nirvana structures its pop songs is, is, is kind of, you know, played into by the band. Uh, but this song, you know, is, is that it is a traditional pop structured song. There's a verse, there's a pre-chorus, and then there's a chorus. And this chorus is pure pop. I mean, it's like, it's got a hook. It's got a repeated line that just says over and over again. And to me, it directly calls forward to, the pop of, of nevermind. And, and so it's like you, I feel like a listener who maybe doesn't really know that Nirvana was this dirty in the beginning would be like, okay, the first part of the song, they'd be like, wow, like this is loud. This is intense. I'm not sure if I can get into this. And then as soon as the chorus comes in and, and Cobain starts saying the don't have nothing for you, you know, as soon as that happens, they're like, oh. Yeah, you're like, I recognize these. <laughs> I feel very comfortable now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and so that's why, that's one of the reasons why we picked this song, Sifting, as the one that we want to talk about because it kind of connects all those different worlds of Nirvana into this one track. I think the other thing that this song does and it was probably hard by the time Nevermind came out, is not to pay so much attention to the lyrics. I mean, Cobain basically came out and was just like, I just said whatever. I was just happy with the music, and the lyrics don't matter as much to me. So it's funny, by the time we get to Nevermind, you have people you know, dissecting and analyzing all parts of these lyrics when it's very much more a stream of consciousness or him making... In the case of sifting, just these kind of weird phrasings just based on something sort of rhyming. So the song starts out, afraid to grade, wouldn't it be fun? Cross says floss, wouldn't it be fun? Wet your bed, wouldn't it be fun? Sun felt numb, wouldn't it be fun? So there's, there's not a lot there to dissect. I mean, you could say, you know, the song is definitely about authority figures telling you kind of what to do and kind of being, you know, maybe a, a, a scared, anxious child not knowing, you know, what's right. Because the the next, the, the pre-chorus goes into teacher said, you know, preacher said. So somebody kind of telling you what to do and, you know, you can kind of imagine Cobain. Um, I mean, at the time being, you know, so young and if you know anything about his childhood, it's just a totally fucked up crazy situation that we don't have to get into here you know there's documentaries and you know so much you can read about it but you can imagine him as you know this child who's just like i'm hearing all these weird conflicting things and life just seems really really fucked up to me so so there is you know that side of things but i i just love kind of the the punk attitude by the time we get to that hooky chorus which is don't have nothing for you just over and over again and it reminds me a lot of i think of the pearl jam song not for you you know somebody just kind of telling you like yeah i'm gonna write this yeah you're gonna listen to it but it's for nobody like it's it's for me and you know it's not to to 
sell records. I don't care if you like me. I don't care if you listen to me. You know, that whole like anti-fame attitude that it's so funny because, you know, no, nobody was listening to this album when it came out. <laughs> um, but, you know, to already kind of have that like deep seated, you know, punk thing of just like, I'm just doing this music for me, getting these emotions out. And I think that's like what's so great about Sifting in particular is it's like a more raw emotion of, you know, Cobain expressing kind of, you know, all these things about life, you know, eventually, you know, taking his own life. You can kind of see, you know, some of those frustrations here. And it's just, I don't know, it's it's super emotional. I, I, I feel like it's kind of the best way to describe it. And I think most people don't think of Nirvana that way. I think probably... You know, when the Unplugged album came out, I think everyone sort of realized like, oh, I can kind of feel what he's saying a little bit more in the setting. Um, But to me, you know, it's more the Cobain screaming into the microphone kind of thing that I I I connect more to, I think. Yeah. So 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 like I said, Cobain is an unreliable narrator. So we, we have to always, everything that we find in interviews and stuff like that, that he says, we always have to, you know, take with a, a huge grain of salt. But one of the things that he, that he did repeat over and over again is how he, like Jason said, he didn't really take lyrics seriously, at least not on the Bleach album. Uh, he, he actually says numerous times that he feels no, no deep connection to the lyrics on this album. And that a lot of them were written, you know, like, while they were being recorded. Like he was like jotting notes down as they were recording lyrics. And then he was like, Oh, let's just record the vocal take now. And I have a quote here from him uh, that kind of summarizes this, which is, it was like, I'm pissed off. Don't know what about let's just scream negative lyrics. And as long as they're not sexist and don't get too embarrassing, it'll be okay. And, and what's so interesting. And, and I love this quote and, and I, and, and I love how it connects to, to bleach in general and, and this song sifting. But what's so great about this is that it doesn't matter with Nirvana, what he's saying. And, and the reason is, is because no matter what Kurt wrote down, it was going to connect with the people that listened to it. You know, like the, 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 the thing is, is that, you know, if you go into a, a you know, you could randomly select from a hundred teenagers of today in 2021, and you could go into all of their rooms and at least one of them is going to have a poster of Kurt Cobain on their wall. And, and the reason is, is because they, they don't understand what he's saying. They don't understand what smells like teen spirit is about. They don't understand what these lyrics mean, but they know what they mean like in their hearts, basically. They know that he's screaming about the frustrations of, of being young, of, of being poor, of being an outcast, of being weird, of being different, of not, you know, you know, not quite understanding your sexuality, not quite understanding your gender, not understanding your family, not understanding school, like all these things, they understand what he's trying to say, even though he doesn't directly say it. And I think, you know, once, once again, calling back to this song sifting it, you know, he even says like, you know, like Jason mentioned, like he has these, these words in here, teacher, preacher, you know, uh, wouldn't it be fun? That kind of like ironic, like, you know, I can just imagine like a, like a, a principal coming into the school and being like, wouldn't it be fun kids to not <laughs> do drugs or, you know, like, whatever. Like I, I kind of imagine that. And then in the chorus, all he does is say over and over again, don't have nothing for you. And it's like, sure. If you just look at the lyrics, they don't make sense. But the way he delivers those lines, you know, like he is from his gut, from his heart saying like, fuck all these people. I have nothing for them. One of the really interesting things about Bleach is we mentioned it wasn't 
a hugely successful record when it first came out. You know, Sub Pop didn't have the money to really do anything with it. But people did hear this album and critics did hear something amazing in it, which is funny because the one person, you know, the 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 one group of people Cobain certainly doesn't care about and this band is not writing for are kind of the people that I think gave some buoyancy to Bleach and kind of kept it as like, oh, this might be a band to to keep an eye on and look out for and see what they do in the future. And it's just so funny to me because for Nirvana, this is a band that went from someone investing a very small amount of money in them to do this record and basically doing everything they needed to do with it, like laying down the blueprint for like what this band was. And I don't know. It's funny to me that this isn't, this album and, you know, sifting and everything isn't more revered for being able to do so much with so little. And I feel like the fans kind of a a lot of Nirvana fans, I'm sure there's going to be, you know, some Nirvana fans listening to this podcast being like, fuck you. I love bleach. I I had (laughs) bleach before I had never mind. (laughs) But yeah, (laughs) I was one of the like 40,000 people who bought it. Um, (laughs) But it's just so funny to me that, people don't go back to this and they're like wow holy shit this band went from this to never mind like these are back-to-back albums and i don't know it, it just strikes me as funny that knowing how little nirvana music is out there that bleach is still kind of the overlooked unappreciated you know bastard child of the nirvana albums when to me it's like the you know, some of these songs fit so well. And I'll get to that in a minute when I, you know, talk about my own kind of um, introduction into Nirvana. But I don't know. I, it's just, it's so funny to me that this isn't some, you know, that the Bleach album isn't seen as like a cornerstone of this kind of rags to riches story of this band and, you know, revered by musicians everywhere for being just like, oh, you can do this for very little money you know not be the most proficient musicians in the world and get the job done i don't know for for being i know a lot of people would listen to bleach and be like "Ooh, that was kind of a, a bleak dark album but i don't know i find it inspiring of just you know how much they were able to do with with so little and not having a real roadmap and not having you know a lot of support from the record label and just i don't know they they got it done and i feel like in listening to it that's kind of always what i think about is like listen to this and then listen to nevermind and it just blows my mind yeah we 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 did our oasis episode we talked a bit about um you know the the background of of the gallagher brothers and how you know they were just poor dudes and wanted to write rock songs and played their shows and then they got a lucky break and all of a sudden they were superstars. And I feel like the Nirvana story is very similar in that, you know, there was no intention to be famous. There was no, you know, courting of the music press, you know, like you said a few times now, like, you know, Kurt and the band, they were just like, no, we're making a record that we want to listen to and we have nothing. We came from nothing and we just want to express ourselves and and do it that way. And and Bleach is a as a represent is is a pure representation of that. In fact, the, the the name of the album is kind of you know is kind of fitting in a way. It's like this like you know totally just like clear established like this is this is it you know. And and I think that what's 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 so interesting about Nirvana in general, but also just the grunge '90s scene altogether is that it, it I don't think it could ever happen again like it can't happen in the climate that we have nowadays you know nowadays when people want to talk about you know oh somebody just like coming up on their own they probably bring up people like like Billie Eilish you know like this young girl who with her brother writes a bunch of songs on their computer puts them on the internet and then all of a sudden boom they're famous and but it's I don't know it's not the same because Billie Eilish didn't grow up you know, in Aberdeen, Washington, poor eating, you know, canned food for the first, you know, 14 years of her life. And, and Billie Eilish doesn't have that, that, you know, 
that anti-establishment attitude that made Kurt Cobain so relatable to so many people. Billie Eilish like courts the fame, you know, like she's like in advertisements everywhere. And she, you know, there's already documentaries about her on Apple TV and like all this. It's like this kind of thing wouldn't happen again. And so you're right. Like, it's so interesting that people don't go back to this and, and see it as being like this, like, I don't know, this like time capsule of what it was like to be able to have $600 and make a record that could change the world. You know, like it, that, I don't know. I just don't, I just don't see it happening anymore. It's just very, it's very sad. think about Nirvana and I think about kind of my real introduction to the band you know I heard them on the radio I was younger you know elementary school middle school you know when this band was you know when the band was famous it was probably elementary school and um, by middle school was when the live album from the Muddy Banks of the Wishka came out so this was like 1996 and I was in Boy Scouts at the time and I, I did I did nothing. I, I earned like very few <laughs> merit badges. I at the time I just really enjoyed camping um, and hanging out with some of the people in there. And part of what was cool with that was they were you know at least a few years older than me and listened to bands like Nirvana. And that was kind of my first introduction to really kind of putting it together. It's like yes, I I've, I've heard the name Nirvana. Yes, I know that Kurt Cobain is the lead singer and. You know, I know that he, you know, killed himself and the band is no more, but it was really, I, I distinctly remember one, one camping trip when they, you know, this was back in the day when you'd have to make sure you had your batteries and bring your little, you know, portable CD player. And I remember them, you know, setting up this little boom box in the tent and just blasting this record from beginning to end, just over and over and over again. It was, it was that band and, um, another punk band, Operation Ivy. They're like a far smaller band, obviously. And um, I just remember like listening to these songs and being like, wow, what is this? Because even though I recognized a few of the songs, I feel like a lot of what's on, you know, from the Muddy Banks of the Wish Guy is kind of a lot of the lesser known, you know, songs from Bleach, songs like School and Negative Creep. So that was kind of the first time I heard some of those. And I was like, wow, this is like awesome. And also just that whole far like dirtier side of nirvana just the kind of explosive energy that you kind of only get from certain bands with a live performance and loved it and i also think it made me more amenable to kind of you know i mentioned the operation ivy that's another kind of lo-fi punk band and i think it made me more comfortable with that kind of sound when i listen to things and i mean we've talked in this episode about you know how the production style of bleach might kind of turn you off because it, it sounds kind of rough around the edges um but i think it made it just all the more interesting to me and made me kind of pay less attention to that kind of stuff or be more comfortable with it because i just thought oh these songs are like so cool like it's i i I don't know. It was just such a different side of the band hearing them live like that. And that was kind of where I was just like, okay, I, I love Nirvana, you know, beyond just like, oh, Smells Like Teen Spirit is kind of cool. And I, you know, catch it on, you know, MTV pretty regularly. Um, so it was just this whole other aspect of the band. Um, and, you know, they've since released, you know, a lot of different live stuff, but there is just something about that that live album i mean it was the the first one aside from the mtv unplugged and it's probably funny because i'm, I'm sure with some nirvana fans if you were just like okay you have to choose between the unplugged and from the muddy banks of the wish guy i feel like i'm one of those few people that's just like give me from the muddy banks of the wish guy because it's like just so loud and crazy and messy um and so that's kind of like always my go-to and it's 
funny because I, I, you know, I love Bleach, and uh, but I think of this band so much more in like a live context than ever trying to imagine these guys in a studio. It's just really hard for me to picture like Kurt Cobain in a studio doing like multiple takes of of anything. I don't know. There's just we talk about how much of this band is just you know the raw emotion, and I feel like that you know you you definitely get that um, in the in the live performances. So that's that's what I'll always think about when I think about Nirvana. Uh, just as like an aside, uh, Butch Vig, the producer of Nevermind, once said that he was he was lucky if he ever got more than three takes out of <laughs> Kurt Cobain at any given moment, and I think it lines up very well with what you're talking about, where it's just like. You know, he was so hell bent on the emotion that once you get past the third take, you know, you're not you're not really playing from the gut anymore. You're playing like you're, you know, you're you're being very methodical. You're thinking about it too much. Yeah, you're thinking about it too much, and and that that wasn't what Nirvana was all about. Nirvana was at its best when they weren't thinking at all. They were just like it was just raw energy and raw emotion coming out of of all three of them. Uh, yeah, I I. I I was born in 1983, so when Bleach came out, I was six. So obviously, way too young for Bleach, <laughs> you know. Um, and by the time you know Nirvana was at its peak, fame-wise, with with Smells Like Teen Spirit and you know all the songs from Nevermind all over the radio, I was you know barely barely ten. I you know I was definitely too young to really understand what was going on. But at the same time, Nirvana was everywhere and music was always a big thing for, for, for my family. My, both my mom and my dad, uh, you know, were, were, were big music fans. And my mom would, you know, she introduced me to a lot of different like seventies rock, like David Bowie and Roxy music and stuff like that. And then, you know, my dad was a lot more like new wave eighties. So I learned a lot about like, you know, tears for fears and Depeche mode and stuff like that from him. And Nirvana was, was, was something that was happening then, you know, it wasn't my mom and my dad being like, Hey, like, you know, you should listen to this band that I grew up with. It was more like, wow, this is, this is now, this is the now, this is the music of your generation. But because music was such a big thing in the household, uh, you know, it, it was impossible to avoid hearing about Nirvana and hearing, you know, interviews with Kurt Cobain and seeing them on TV. So it's like, it's very interesting because even though I wasn't, you know, I, I didn't buy, you know, a Nirvana album until, until in utero. So it was like, you know, right around the time that Kurt was, was really descending into drug addiction. And, you know, it was only a matter of months before he was going to unfortunately, you know, kill himself. It, I, I still remember all these things happening. I remember seeing the smells like teen spirit video for the first time and being like, you know, this is, this is so awesome. You know, like, this is just incredible. This is like, this isn't just like some slick move, you know, uh, overproduced video with like lots of like scantily clad women running around. And it wasn't like, you know, the guns and roses hair metal song. It was like, that, that was me. Like I was like, there's me in school. You know, for those of you who haven't seen the, the smells of teen spirit video, it's, it's the band playing in a gymnasium surrounded by high school students who all look like generic, cliche high school students such a cheerleader and a jock and a you know greaser punker all these people standing around and i don't know it just it was so explosive so i remember seeing that but i don't remember when you know i don't remember how old i was i don't remember when i was watching it you know i remember seeing the the band play at the mtv music awards which is when kurt famously started to play a different song uh, rape me. He started playing rape me at the beginning of the set and then quickly switched. And they started to play, I think, uh, in bloom instead. And, uh, you know, that was like a big controversy because, you know, uh, the, 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 the channel almost cut him off because they were like, you can't play a song called rape me on, on network television. You just can't do that. So, you know, I remember that happening. I remember them smashing all their equipment. I remember all this, I remember all this, but I don't remember like when or where or how old I was or what was going on. But I do distinctly remember the day that I found out that Kurt Cobain died. I remember I was outside hanging out, sitting, sitting in the yard or doing something, drawing, listening to music. I don't know what I was doing. And, uh, and then my cousin Ian, you know, he had heard about it and he came up to me and he said, you know, Kurt Cobain died. And, and, you know, it was one of those things. I'm sure the people who were alive when, when John Lennon died, uh, or people who remember 9-11, like, it, it's like, it's one of those moments where it happens, and then you distinctly know at that moment 
that it's a big deal. You know, that something just happened. Something just changed. You may not understand why, you know, like when, when nine 11 happened, I was like, wow, like this is totally insane. But I had no idea what was coming. I had no idea what was going to change about the world. All I knew is that this was a distinct moment in time that was going to change things in the future somehow. And that's what happened when I found out, you know, Kurt Cobain died. So it's weird. Like when I think about Nirvana and I think about my listening to Nirvana and my history and appreciation for them, I just, it's, it's like, it's like a David Lynch film. It's like, you know, these, these weird little montages of, of distinct memories that feel dreamlike, but at the same time, I can distinctly connect with them in some way. So I don't know. It's just, it's just this weird kind of relationship. And when, when I hear people talk about Nirvana, when I see documentaries about Nirvana and, and when I hear, you know, all the reverence that's given to this band, it's, it's, I don't know. It's one of those, it's one of those times where I, I totally agree, but don't know why, you know, like I don't understand why this band is so important and so distinctly, uh, life altering but at the same time i agree it's 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 just like this weird thing that kind of happens and i i can't really think i guess you know maybe people older than me kind of feel the same way about the beatles you know where it's just like i don't know why i love this band so much but they're the greatest thing that's ever happened you know and i feel like nirvana is kind of the same thing but for for people my age and uh yeah so i i i really hope that people who maybe love Nirvana. You know, I, like Jason kind of joked about it a, a little bit earlier in the episode about how, you know, there's, there's probably going to be Nirvana fans listening to this. They're going to be like, what the hell are these guys talking about? Bleach is the best thing, you know, and I'm sure those people will exist, but they're, you know, we have data. <laughs> we have data about the listening habits of people that prove that most listeners are not listening to these tracks. And if you are a Nirvana fan already, and for whatever reason, you, you know, are only listening to Nevermind and in utero and you know those albums by heart but for whatever reason are ignoring bleach don't do it you know this song sifting is is one of their best and and a lot of their greatest material is on bleach so you really need to dig it out and and start listening because uh because this is where it all began this is this is this is what changed everything you know this was the spark maybe never mind was the fire but this was the spark and you really need to to understand and appreciate that uh, if you're going to ever understand what Nirvana is and, and why it's so important. Please visit our website at www.skippedonshuffle.com for more news about other episodes and our upcoming schedule. We are also on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Please visit skippedonshuffle.com for links to all of our social media pages.